Amen. It's good to see you. <laughs> it's good to see you. I didn't realize how good it would be to see you. Um, and I, I think it's the, it's, it's the, it's the small things that I, I didn't realize I missed. Um, I mean, of course, the, the, the hugs and handshakes and smiles and, and those sorts of things, uh, when hugs and handshakes come back and all that, right? But uh, watching a room full of people worship the Lord and you can't contain yourself, so you're rocking back and forth because your body has to, has to align itself with the truth that you're singing. <sighs> I didn't get that in my living room for the last 10 weeks, and, uh, and I missed it. And uh, it's good to be back, even with weird uh, circumstances. Um, if you have your Bibles, we'll open up to Esther. Esther chapter 5, we'll continue our study where we've been. Um, as you turn with me, uh, I, uh, I grew up, like many of you, in a, in a really small community, a rural area in uh, central Louisiana, uh, a little place called Atlanta, Louisiana, uh, not Hotlanta in Georgia. Uh, tiny, tiny little place. They had a, a Class C high school. That tells you how small it was. That only had basketball, so no football, no baseball. We didn't even know what a soccer ball was. Not exaggerating. Um, that's just the way we grew up. Every season was basketball season because that's all we had. And uh, my dad's a pastor, so in the, the third grade, he took a church uh, about an hour from where I grew up. And we moved, and it, it was a little bit bigger place. Still very small, but uh, they had a 3A high school, so they had football and baseball. And I was immediately fascinated by this football thing, this, uh, this new sport with this funny-shaped ball. And so in seventh grade, when all of my buddies went out for the team and tried out for the football team, I joined them and, uh, and went and, and tried out. Now, bl- believe it or not, I was the same height I am now in the sixth grade, and so the coaches had incredible aspirations for me. Uh, they thought, man, this kid's tall. He's got decent hands. He can catch the ball, maybe a wide receiver or a tight end. And um, that was fairly true. I had decent hands. I could catch the ball okay until they strapped all that equipment on me, right? And the helmet kind of locks in your vision. You can't move your head and your arms are constricted by the the shoulder pads. So you kind of feel like you have T-Rex arms and you try to catch the football and it just, and so it it wasn't working out, but um, uh, they they put me as a tight end and I, I, I had no understanding. This was probably the worst thing. I think the coach assumed that we all understood the game, like how it works, like basic in, in how it, basic rules worked. I didn't. I came from a school that only had basketball, so I had no clue. I had no clue. So as a tight end, I'm blocking, and I'm like holding the guy. I don't know I was causing, you know, causing a problem or creating a foul. Uh, and then, then I finally catch the ball in a, in a scrimmage against the eighth grade, and uh, I turn and run the wrong direction, and I scored. I just scored for the wrong team. I went to, to the wrong end zone, and it was horrifying. I was so embarrassed. And I'll never forget this as long as I live. That day when we got back to the locker room and we're all taking off our equipment stuff, one of the, the guys from our team, eighth grader, so he's older than me, stood up on top of the, the bench and he cupped his hands and he said, hey, everybody, give it up for, uh, give it up to, for Matt. He's, our, uh, he's the other team's MVP today. And I will, I just, I've never wanted to crawl under a table or just disappear as much as I wanted to in that moment. I turned beet red. I was so embarrassed that I had done so many wrong things in that scrimmage that he would say I was the other team's MVP. I had, uh, in my ignorance, become an accomplice for the other team. And uh, that sort of thing happens outside of sports, too. It happens in our lives. And spiritual warfare is a real thing. Um, and we deal with it on a daily basis. The, the flesh 
the world, the devil. Um, they work 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and they don't take vac- vacations. And so sometimes, without us even realizing it, uh, we can be with our actions, with our words, even our ambitions, working for the detriment of God's kingdom instead of the building up of God's kingdom. And we don't even realize it sometimes. We're not even aware of it. The text before us this morning is, the te- is a story of two plans. Esther had a plan, and Haman had a plan. And these plans came from drastically different places. Esther's plan came from a place of prayer and fasting. Haman's plan came from a, a place of, of evil, anger, hatred. These two plans had drastically different purposes. Esther's was to save human lives. Haman's plan was created, as, as we'll see in a moment when we get in the text, to end human life. These plans had drastically different perspectives. Esther's could be characterized by selflessness, where Haman's plan was only selfishness. These plans had drastically different outcomes. Esther's plan would end with incredible deliverance, where Haman's plan would end with inevitable destruction. The question before us this morning as we look at these two plans is, whose plan are you carrying out? Like on a daily basis, whose plan are, are you living for? Does it involve making God's name great or your name great? Is it more about his kingdom or your kingdom? Could your plans be characterized as selfless or selfish? Um, Do your plans require you to live by faith? Do they result in the advancement of the gospel, the spread of God's kingdom? Or does it work towards the detriment of it? Even sometimes without you knowing, that's what's going on. In the text, God's people, in particular Esther, is moving from asking God, like prayer and fasting, to acting for God, putting feet before faith and, and moving into action. And I think a lot of us are, if not now, will be soon or, or have been recently in a similar place. The question is, whose plan are you carrying out? And if we don't wrestle with that question and ask that question and evaluate our lives, the fact is we're likely, uh, because of our flesh, because we're sinful people, even though we've been born again, we're sinful people, and it could be that we're working for the enemy's plans and we don't even know it. And so this morning is sort of a how-to, right? A how-to guide for living out God's plan. Two sections, two major points. These will, I think, be on the screens. Uh, Two major sections here. First one's verses 1 through 8, and it's how to live out God's plan in your life. And then the second major section will be verses 9 through 14, how to live out Satan's plan in your life. And now I want to be clear, just in case there's any confusion, I'm not saying that you would want to live out Satan's plan, and I'm certainly not telling you that you should live out Satan's plan. Uh, That would be a strange thing to hear in the house of the Lord. Um, But these steps are more instructional for us as we realize ways to help us diagnose or or be warned that that could be happening even when we're unaware. So that's sort of how I'm not not encouraging you to be a Satanist, you know, live out Satan's plan in your life. Uh, I'm just maybe hopefully through the text helping us think through if that might be happening in and we don't even know it. So number one, how to live out God's plan in your life, verses one through eight. First uh, step there, if if you will, is uh, we put feet to our faith. Look at verse one with me. It says, on the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace in front of the king's quarters while the king was sitting on his royal throne inside the throne room opposite the entrance of the palace. So after days of prayer and and fasting, Esther doesn't hesitate. She acts, right? She moves into action. Don't miss the irony here in verse 1, what we saw in chapter 1. If you remember all the way back to the beginning of our study, Vashti, the the former queen, the first queen that we found out about, she risked her life by refusing to appear before the king. And here, Esther risks her life 
by appearing before the queen, but the, the very same king. And he does it, and she does it unsummoned. She's going before him without being asked or, or given permission. And so she's risking her life for the very thing that Vashti said she would not do. Um, but Esther moves into action. She puts on her best clothes. She fixes her hair, uh, brushes her teeth, or, or whatever you do in that day and age. Get ready. Make yourself as presentable as you can. And she goes to see the king. The question for us, church, is are you making the most out of every opportunity you have before the Lord? Like, I think any of us will be able to say, well, probably not. In some ways, no. Um, but how often do we say things like, I'll pray about it? When really, we're not trying to discern God's will. It's just a, a way for us to delay giving an answer. Maybe we don't want to tell someone no, so I'll pray about that. And we have no intention of actually considering it. This is an example of choosing fear, disobedience, rather than faith and obedience. Procrastination is a terrible, terrible habit. It's far worse, though, when that procrastination is something that God has laid before us, and we, we, I'll pray about it. I'll, I'll, I'll see. I'll consider it. Esther didn't do that. She didn't postpone obedience to her commitment. She set a resolve, and she did what she committed before the Lord to do. Her time in prayer led to action in the king's palace. Her fasting led to faithfulness. So, are you delaying? Are you delaying obedience before God? Let Christ plan. Let his presence in your life and let his promises to you provide the courage to obey what he's commanded from you. And here's the thing, and here's why this is important. It's why it's important that we get this truth today. When we follow and obey and are obedient to Christ's commands and his plan, by his strength, something supernatural, very important happens. Look at, our, you don't have to turn there with me, but 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 11 it says, if anyone serves, let it be from the strength that God provides so that God may be glorified through Jesus Christ in everything. To him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. So did you, did you see that? In 1 Peter 4, it tells us that when we serve God, when we fulfill Christ's plan in our lives by his strength, the strength that we're given in Christ, it's not just for your good and not just for the good of those around you. It's actually bringing him glory. It's actually giving him due glory and fame that he's worthy of. And so if you're delaying, if there's anything you've been saying, I'll get around to it or I'll pray about it or I know that the Lord's been putting this on my heart and, and calling me to this, don't delay. Go and act. Put feet to your faith. Go and be obedient immediately. One more note here before we move on out of verse 1. Every week we've sort of wrapped up our time together in Esther through the online teaching um, by seeing gospel threads. Where's the gospel at in the book of Esther? And uh, we're going to do that again today, but instead of doing it at the end, I'm going to give it to you as we go. So here's the first one. Look at how verse 1 starts. It says, on the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and makes her way into the palace. On the third day, the deliverance of God's people, the Jewish people in Persia, from death and destruction was initiated when Xerxes extends his golden scepter. We'll see that next in verse 2. But it wouldn't have, right? If he wouldn't have extended that golden scepter, it would have meant her death, and it would have meant uh, a terrible foreshadowing of everything that's about to follow for the destruction of the Jewish people. But on the third day, in the throne room of the king, Esther was granted life instead of death. I hope gospel bells are ringing in your ears without me having to fill in those details for you. But in case they're not, I, I, I get the joy of filling in those details for you. Martin Luther was actually the first uh, that I saw in the, in the history of the church that, that pulled this gospel thread out of Esther. He did it in the 16th century in the Protestant Reformation. But this third day should remind us of another third day, right? 
that after tasting death for all of his people, on the third day, Christ arose from the dead. He'd taken the ultimate condemnation on the cross, a criminal's death, bearing our sin and shame. And on the third day, like Esther, wrapped in royal robes, he arose to imperishable life. I mean, like, in him doing so guarantees. It is the thing that you can stake your life on that because Christ is no longer in the tomb. We will have eternal life with him if we are in Christ. This is the greatest twist to any story ever told that where we would expect death, we're surprised by life. That Jesus walks out of the tomb when men don't walk out of tombs. Jesus did. And so this third day should remind us about another third day that's coming in the New Testament that we hinge our whole lives around. So the second thing we see, again, we're looking at this idea, if, if you want to live out God's plan in your life, second one is this, put away fear as you experience God's favor. Look at verse 2. And when, the, and when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favor in his sight, and he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther approached and touched the tip of the, of the scepter. And the times arrived. Esther is standing before the, the, the king only seconds now, and, and he will inevitably see her by the way he's positioned in verse 1. That's what it's showing us, that he's going to see her if she's there. Would she be received? Would she be rejected? Would he be in a grumpy mood or would he be in a generous mood? Would she live? Would she die? At this point, she's done everything she could. She's, she's fasted. She's prayed. She's asked the people of God to pray. She's put on her fancy clothes. She stood in the right spot. Everything, including her life, depended upon this next look from Xerxes. And he looks. Can you relate to that? Like, in any sense, like, you know you were acting in faith. You'd prayed about something. You'd spent time asking the Lord, don't let me miss it. Help me to follow. I want to follow you carefully and clearly. You had a peace maybe even about it, but you still knew. You were still uncertain of how it was going to turn out. Like, there's the circumstances were such that, that, that the, I've trusted it to you, Lord, but I don't know how this thing's going to go. I think we've probably all, all been there at some point. Here's the thing, church. When we put feet to our faith, as Esther's clearly done, we shouldn't be surprised when we find God's favor. This was true for Esther. The king sees her. He granted her life because, as the text says, verse 2, she won favor in his sight. Now, if you've been counting, that's the fourth time in the book of Esther we've seen that, that she's found favor with someone. Esther's winning favor with people because God's favor was upon her. You can imagine the calm, right? The, the peaceful rest that washed over her as, he, as Xerxes extended this, this scepter of peace toward her. And she reaches out and touches it, knowing that she's spared. She's found safety. He's not going to kill her for coming to his presence. That's, that's great joy in finding that kind of favor. And the same is true in our lives. As you obey Christ, believer, as you put feet to your faith and follow the commands of God, recognize his favor upon your life and, and let that bring you incredible rest and peace and confidence. Now, I want to be clear. His favor may not look like the circumstances of your life always being peachy and exactly what you would have chosen for yourself. Just because you, you have the favor of God on your life doesn't mean that your circumstances are going to be rosy. His favor is that he'll never leave you, never forsake you, never abandon you. Uh, his favor is, 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 is as a believer, as a, as a child of God, you are his son or daughter. Listen, church, that's the favor of God, that you'll never again be an orphan. You'll never again be an enemy of the living God. That's the favor that we can rest in. That's what his favor looks like. And so no matter what our circumstances are, that's, that's, what the, tr that's the truth that brings us peace and rest, that you're safe, you are loved the king of the universe is your dad. 
That's what his favor looks like. Well, Esther had a bigger goal than simply entering into the palace. She wants to see uh, the persecution of her people ended. So look at what she says next. And that leads us to our third observation. If we want to live out God's plan in our life, number three, put away selfishness. Put away selfishness. Look at verse three. And the king said to her, what is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? And it shall be given you even to half of my kingdom. Now, in this moment, Esther has a decision to make. It's clear that Xerxes has spared her life. She knows she's not going to be at least killed for going into his presence, which is a huge sigh of relief. And that for some reason, even though they haven't been together for a month, right? That's what we learned last week. She hasn't been with the king in a month. He cares for her in some way. And he's, he's, he's being generous. And so the question for her is, will she make an appeal for herself? You know, show her identity. Mordecai's already said, the truth's going to be found out. So even though you're a Jew living in the palace, you're, you're going to be found out you're going to die too. So will she now make an appeal for herself or for the bigger request of advocating for the whole nation of people that have been condemned to death? It's sort of this uh, give an inch, take a mile kind of thing. Like, all right, I found some, some, uh, some peace, some generosity here. So how much should I ask for? Maybe my own neck is, is, is enough here. And then there's this statement from Xerxes. Like, was he really willing to give up half of his kingdom? That's huge. If, if you need a reminder, that's basically the known world at this time, except for Greece, because he went down and tried to, to fight Greece, and they handed it to him. But uh, besides them, this, this is a huge, massive empire. Does, is he really going to give her half the empire? I mean, this doesn't seem like the kind of fellow that would be that generous. And yet he repeats the phrase. He, he says it three times in the book total. So it's not just a slip of the tongue. Well, what we learned from history is this was sort of a formality. This was a, a way of showing that you're, you're offering generosity, even extreme generosity, but it, it wasn't a blank check. Now, if you remember, uh, fast forward to the New Testament, and I'll, I'll show you how this is a figure of speech. You see it in the New Testament as well, right? Like Herod makes this same gesture to Herodias' daughter um, who dazzled him with her dancing. And her request was she wanted the head of John the Baptist, and he, he delivered Right? Like that's in, the, that's in the New Testament. So we see this language again. In Esther's case, this is a window of opportunity for Esther to say that what she really desired was not his possessions, but for the, the, the protection of her people. She, she wanted her people to go free. So would she be selfless, put away selfishness, and act on behalf of her people, or just save her own neck? And I think there's some truth here that we need to realize for our own lives as well as we make applications. We want to trust the Lord and walk in his plans for our life selfishness, listen close, is always a clear sign that we're being fueled more by the desires of this world than the commands of Christ. Think about any time that you've been selfish in your life. Are you living for yourself in that moment or are you dying to self? You're living for yourself. Selflessness, I'll be careful in those two because they sound the same. Selflessness is always a mark of, of those that God is using to build his kingdom. You don't always... Um, see selfish people, or you never see selfish people that God's just propelling forward to use mightily for his kingdom, because God said, blessed are the, the meek, those that wouldn't be selfish. So if you want to gauge spiritual maturity, like, especially think, think, think of our circumstances and our context and the world we're living in right now and, and, and all of the, the drama that surrounds this whole pandemic thing. Like, you want to gauge someone's spiritual maturity? Tell me how they respond, how they act when they don't get their way. Like, let that, let that selfishness gauge uh, show you something about your spiritual maturity. And think about the language we see in the New Testament. I mean, Paul tells the church at Corinth that he would gladly spend and be spent for them. That doesn't sound like selfishness. 
Think about what he tells us the church at Colossae. I mean, this is not just a one-time thing with the church at Corinth. He tells the church at Colossae that he was commissioned to be a servant of God on, on their behalf, and he rejoiced in his sufferings that he endured for their sake. Doesn't sound like self-centeredness there. And so we ask the Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, would you help me to see, am I more selfish or selfless as I live life? Am I thinking more about myself or more about those around me, the lost around me, my brothers and sisters in Christ? If we're going to live for God's plan, we, we, be, we must be a, a selfless people. And then number four, this is the last one. And these, this is not an exhaustive list either. I, I should have said that from the beginning. Like These are four that we see in this text, but uh, I think they're a help, a litmus test, or a gauge for if we're walking in God's plan. But they're certainly not a, an exhaustive list. But number four, we see this in verses four through eight. Put your brain to work and be strategic, right? Look at verse four. And Esther said, if it please the king, let the king and Haman come today to a feast that I prepared for the king. And the king said, well, bring Haman quickly so that we may do as Esther's asked. So the king and Haman came to the feast that Esther had prepared. So Esther's alive. She has the king's attention. He's extended the, the, the rod of peace. And so she now can plead her case on behalf of her people. But just as we think she's about to ask for the king to strike down this death decree, she instead invites him to a feast <laughs> with none other than Haman. I mean, like, what in the world is going on here? People are in peril. They're, they're literally they're, they're being condemned to death, and she's throwing a party. And if there's one thing we learn about the Persians in the book of Esther, it's that these folks love to party, right? Over and over. Almost every chapter we've seen a feast or a party of some kind. Well, in her defense, it's often been said that the way to a man's heart is through his stomach. So maybe the idea isn't so bad. I'll get him fed, and uh, then I'll make my request. But really, though, what's going on here? Like, as we, as we try to discern what, what's happening in the book of Esther, is she delaying? Is she stalling? Is, did she lose her nerve, and now she's sort of backing out? No, she, she had a plan. And let me show you how you can see that. No, notice a couple observations here. Verse 4, the meal is already prepared. <laughs> Did you note that in the text? It says it twice, and it's in the past tense. She's already prepared this meal. So that tells us a couple things. It tells us first that she's really hopeful she's going to live. There's some element of faith here evident as she's cooking the meal, preparing the feast before she ever goes and makes her request. Second, it shows us that this is all part of a master plan. Like, this is a strategy. This is something she thought about. She, she didn't just go and rush into the king and, and you know, let the, the, the chips fall where they may. This is all planned out. And so any delay here is not some nervous backing out. It's well thought out. And you may be wondering, well, Matt, why in the world did she need to be so strategic? I mean, after all, the king's being very generous. Why would she need to be so careful and exercise discernment, have this elaborate plan worked out? Well, think about what we've seen so far. Think about the character of this man that we've been learning about. He's prone to fits of rage. He's, he's spontaneous with his decisions. He lacks judgment. On top of that, she's asking for the, reversible, uh, the reverse of, a, of an irreversible law that the, that the most powerful man in the land, Haman, had sponsored and that the king had, 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 had uh, sealed with his signet ring. Further, this reversal is going to cost him, right? We've already seen Haman commit 10,000 talents if he'll do this. That's, that's approximately half of the annual tax revenue of this empire at this time in Persia. That's huge. That's a huge loss financially. And even worse, I think this is the biggest one. There's no way for Xerxes to back out here and to go back on his word without losing face, right? And think about what we've learned about Xerxes. He will go to extreme measures to make himself look good, Think about how far he'll go so that he doesn't look bad, right? 
There's no way he can do this without losing face. And then finally, think about this. Even just in your own home and marriage, think about this one. Her doing this, her, her making this request would mean that she's going to have to reveal her Jewish identity. That's going to create terrible backlash from a king husband that she's been deceiving for the past five years by not telling her ethnicity. All of that riding upon this request. And so she must use wisdom. She must do it strategically. This feast is going to provide that opportunity. Some of the formality subsides as they're sitting around the table together. But more important than that, it eliminates the risk of her embarrassing him, right? In the, in the palace and in the courtroom with all the, the, the court officials and the royal court around him. He doesn't have to, to go back on his word or crawfish in front of all those people. So all of this is planned out and it's strategic. All of that's weighing in the balance. And so with that in mind, this feast doesn't look so foolish after all. In fact, it's brilliant. And now comes the moment again. Continue with me in the text. The king is full. The wine has been consumed. And he's ready to fulfill his wife's request. So let's see what she says in verse 6. And they were drinking wine after the feast. And the king said to Esther, what is your wish? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to half of my kingdom, and it shall be fulfilled. Then Esther answered, My wish and my request is, if I've found favor in the sight of the king, and if it pleased the king to grant my wish and to fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come to another feast. I will prepare for them. And tomorrow I will do as the king has said. Like, what? Another feast? And you hear this, you're like thinking, you blew it. Like, you... You had him full. He's even got some, some alcohol in him. And so just ask, like, make the request. You had your shot and you missed it. But it's all part of the plan. It's still part of her strategy and what she's thrown out. And then look at exactly what she said. Look at verse 8. Notice what, how she says it. This is important, and it's, it's part of her strategy. If I've found favor in the sight of the king, right? And if the king, uh, if, if, the, if it pleased the king to grant my wish and to fulfill my request. So there's if, if. Then let the king and Haman come to the feast tomorrow. So she was just doing. She's connecting tomorrow's feast with the commitment that he's already promised. If the king really wants to do, if you're really committed to doing what you've said and, and given this request, then tomorrow's attendance will be the assurance of that. Come to tomorrow's feast. And so you see what happens, right? By having the second feast, she's only boosting his commitment level and curiosity such that all night, like, what is this thing she's going to ask for? Like, what in the world is this, this thing that I'm committing to? As we think about our brains and how God has given us wisdom and, and being strategic in our commitment to Christ, there are a few thoughts here, and I'm going to hit these real quick. A few thoughts that I think we can apply and take away in our lives. First is this, uh, and th these won't be in your notes. These are just sort of, you know, these are, these are for free. Note that she invited Haman to both feasts, and she would be dining with the devil two nights in a row. And think about what that means, right? Like very few people enjoy confrontation, and even fewer people handle it well and handle it in a God-honoring way. It's so easy and it's tempting, right, to talk about people behind their back, like right? to say something about them when they can't hear or defend themselves. That's not God-honoring. That's not loving. Even if someone is evil and, and is such an enemy like Haman, Esther decides that what she's going to say about Haman, she's going to say it in front of Haman in his presence. We could take a cue for, here from Esther. Not to go out looking for confrontation, but, but to commit ourselves not to talk about others behind their backs, behind closed doors, especially in the body of Christ. That creates incredible uh, disunity and division. Let us be a people that would be, be someone that would say something to someone's face because we know that we love them and they love us in return and we can have that sort of relationship. Second thing, as we think about strategy and, and our commitment to Christ, some scholars have given Esther here a bad rap for using worldly methods, scheming to get what she wanted. 
and I want, to be, I want to be clear, we're called to be in the world, not of the world. So we should be distinct, we should be different, we should be set apart and holy. But subtlety and strategy are not necessarily anti-gospel, right? Jesus himself in, in Matthew chapter 10, verse 16 says, Behold, he's talking to the disciples here. I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. Right? So Jesus himself puts these two descriptors beside each other, shrewd, innocent, right? And so as you think about that, even, even, even an, uh, an illustration, I saw this in, in Landon Dowden's commentary on, on the book. He, was, he, was, he framed it in thinking about like a mission trip. Like if you were going to go on a mission trip and you were going to a country where you knew that, that they were hostile to the gospel and you could be killed for the gospel, wouldn't you be a little bit strategic, right? Like think about loading up on an airplane and heading to North Korea, right, on a mission trip. And as the plane lifts off, you decide, hey, I'm going to stand up. I'm going to borrow the uh, flight attendant's little microphone. Hey, uh, all passengers. Just want to let you guys know, uh, I'm headed to North Korea, where I'm going to share the gospel of Jesus Christ and uh, pray that many uh, uh, in this communist nation would come to follow Christ, and all of you on the airplane as well. Well, that may be bold. It's certainly not wise, because as soon as you land in the airport, there's two options, right? Like detainment or being deported. That, That mission trip is the shortest mission trip that's ever existed. You just basically flew to an airport so that you could fly home or worse, be put in prison. No, we would want to use wisdom, and and we would want to certainly share the gospel. We'd want to be careful about how we're doing it and using strategy and and asking God to give us wisdom and how to share and when to share and and who to share with. And so I think we would do that at any point in life. But that leads kind of to our third maybe maybe point of application here as we think about strategy and using our brains for for the spread of the gospel. Knowing what to say and knowing when to say it should not lead us to unending silence. Right? Like, I think that's the other part. Well, I just want to, be, I want, to be wisdom, I want to be wise. I want to use wisdom and discernment, so I don't want to offend people. The gospel's offensive, right? And so Esther's words here, they're all measured. They're all calculated. She had a plan. She had a feast prepared. She had a second feast planned. But all of it eventually is going to give way as she gives Xerxes the details of her request. She can't conceal that news forever. Like, that's the whole point. And we shouldn't either. Yes, we should be strategic in what we share and how we share, how we share our testimony and the gospel and scripture with people. But your strategy in those things shouldn't be that you would remain silent forever. That's not a strategy. That's just disobedience. And so we can sit back and we can, we can, we can uh, share the gospel with confidence and peace and hope, knowing that Christ is going to use it because we've submitted it to him and we're doing it with wisdom. But, here, and here's the thing. We can't just sit back and, and, and hope that our loved ones are going to end up in heaven because they observed our lives, right? In the same way, it makes no sense that we would hope that Xerxes would come to free all of the Jews because Esther cooked him a couple good meals, right? Like, that doesn't make sense. He would never know that was the request. Same is true with the gospel. We can live, and we should live, God-honoring lives, but at some point you have to open your mouth. And so all of that gives us some ideas how to, how to live strategically with wisdom, following God's plan, because we certainly want to follow God's plan. But what about the opposite side of it? I told you there were sort of two points this morning, how to live out God's plan in your life, and the second major plan, how to live out Satan's plan in your life. The Lord's not the only one with a plan. Though he is the only one whose plans will ultimately be accomplished and fulfilled perfectly, Satan makes plans all the time for the destruction of God's people, and he uses out others to carry out those plans. And Haman, in the text, probably didn't even know that he was being used by Satan. He probably didn't even know that he was doing Satan's bidding and work, trying to wipe out the messianic lineage. I mean, think about that. That's what's going on here, right? If Haman's plan is accomplished, the line of Jesus is cut off. He's doing Satan's bidding, and he he probably doesn't even know it. He's just thinking of himself. So we need to check ourselves. 
We need to check our own hearts and lives such that we're not carrying out Satan's plans unwittingly. How do we do that? How do we check? Let me give you some maybe helpful uh, litmus tests or advice for, for seeing that. Number one, you want to live out Satan's plan? Well, don't forsake idols. Instead, feed them. Don't forsake idols. Instead, feed them. Look at verse 9. It says, And Haman went out on that day, joyful, glad of heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, he neither rose nor trembled before him. He was filled with wrath against Mordecai. You ever went from like full-on joy to like all-out rage instantaneously? Like that quick. Like you were, you were so excited, so excited. And then in a moment, you're just furious. I've had that experience more times than I would like to admit. And most of them happen uh, linked to sporting events, right? Like if you've ever watched a sporting event with me, you probably have seen that. That one moment I can be doing a victory lap around the dining room table shouting, yeah! And then the next moment you hear the announcer come on over the screen and say, there's an interception. The other team ran the ball back and scored. Game over. No! <laughs> like in a moment, I'm just, it's that quick. Well, that's what's going on here in the text. Haman's on top of the world. Like he's been invited to now two private feasts with just the king and queen. I mean, he's the man until he sees that stinking Mordecai. And Mordecai's back at the king's gate, and he's not apologetic. Even after this death decree, he's not honoring Haman, and Haman is furious. He refuses to take such dishonor. And you see what's happening. Haman's idol is rearing its head. Haman's idol is, is starting to look up. Give me some attention. So as we make application here, we need to consider two important questions that will help us identify idols in our lives. Here's these two questions. In what or whom do we take joy? In what or whom do we take joy? And then the second part of this question is, what or who kills your joy? On the night that Jesus, uh, the night before his death, Jesus was with his disciples, and this is what Jesus said. Listen real carefully, because this is incredible application for us as we think through idols, practical idols in our lives. Jesus says, he's telling the disciples, you also will have sorrow now, but I'll see you again. Your hearts will rejoice. And then listen to what he says. And no one will take away your joy from you. So Jesus is connecting for the disciples that at some point in the near future, they're going to they're experience sorrow at his death, but at some point in the near future, they would be reunited with him and have irrevocable joy, joy that can't be broken. John Piper calls this uh, the birth of Jesus the dawning of indestructible joy because the joy that Jesus brings into the world is a joy like none other. Why? Because it, it can't be taken away. It can't be destroyed. Like if you have the joy of Christ, the salvation of Christ, it, I'm not going to say your life's always perfect and, and joy-filled and that you're, you're just on top of the world all the time. Your emotions are great. The circumstances are great. But the joy that Jesus brings is an everlasting, indestructible joy. So let me ask again. Do you have complete and indestructible joy? You'll only find that in Christ. Hammond didn't have that. The sources of his joy was his, his pride, his power, his having dined with the king and queen. Those were his idols. Those were the things that he took joy in. And those earthly possessions, those pleasures, they don't have the weightiness. They don't have the weightiness to sustain joy forever. That's why they come and go. That's why in one moment he's, he's furious such that he would kill someone. They simply don't have the power to create unending joy. So what's the source of your joy? It'll either be Jesus or it'll be something else. And if it's something else, then that's an idol in your life that needs to be destroyed, not fed. If you want to follow Satan's plan, just fuel your love for those idols instead of forsaking them. If you want to keep on with Satan's plan, number two, number two, don't forsake pride. Instead, fuel it. 
Don't forsake pride. Instead, fuel. Look at verse 10. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself, and he went home, and he sent and brought his friends and his wife, Zeresh. And Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, all the promotions with which the king had honored him, and how he had advanced him above all the officials and servants of the king. And then Haman said, Even Queen Esther, let no one but me come with the king to the feast that she had prepared. And tomorrow also I'm invited by her together with the king. Look at verse 13 now. Yet all of this is nothing to me so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the gate. Haman didn't just want to be somebody. He was convinced that he was somebody, right? Like Mordecai, again, refusing to show honor. It, it makes him furious. What does Haman do? Well, he takes a, a play out of uh, Xerxes' playbook. He goes back home. He invites a bunch of friends over. He gets his wife to come out. And uh, why? Well, so that he could tell them how great he was. Like he does the same thing Xerxes does in chapter 1. He, he throws a party so that they could see his glory, his greatness, and they could bask at how awesome he is. Verse 11, his significance, his security were found in honors and awards and possessions and privileges that he enjoyed. In other words, if you want to follow Satan's plan for your life, just be prideful. Like pride is one of those things. It's one of those sins that we don't hear a lot about. Like, probably not many sermons just on pride or Sunday school lessons just on pride. But and the reason for that, I think, is, is because if we're honest, it hits close to home for all of us in some manner, in some respect. One scholar said this, pride is one of the greatest sins because it makes us treat God's gifts as if they rightfully belong to us and were created by us. Our pride robs God of his right to be acknowledged as the source of all good that we know and enjoy. Our pride is a form of dishonesty since it gives us false views of ourselves and our importance. Listen to this. It is frequently the substitution and exaltation of ourselves in the place of God. That's pretty serious. For a sin that we so often just like, this was a little small sin. It's kind of like little white lies, a little pride in my heart. Not that big a deal. No, it's a huge deal. You're, you're, you're substituting yourself for God. If you want to follow Satan's plan for your life, then just have Haman's attitude. All eyes on me. Look how great I am. Look at all the things I've accomplished. And James 4, 6 says, God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So which one do you want to be? <laughs> someone that God would resist or someone that God gives grace to? Well, how do we feel humility? If pride is that, if pride is the downfall, if pride is the, the indicator that we're following Satan's plan, how do we feel humility and avoid sinful pride? Well, I think one practical thing, at the end of every day, just try this this next week. At the end of every day, before you go to bed, think carefully and give God glory for every evidence of, of his grace in your life. Now, you can do this by yourself in your mind and in your own heart. You can do it with your spouse or, or if you have kids great discipline to get into, but, but think in your own heart and mind all of the ways that God has blessed me and lavished his grace upon me. And when you do that, something supernatural is occurring when you do that, right? Like you're cultivating gratitude. Whether you think you are or not, you're cultivating an appreciation, a, a dependence upon God, a humility that I didn't do this, this is God's gift, and you're avoiding foolish pride. That's something the Holy Spirit's doing in you as you just do this discipline of thinking, meditating on all the ways God's blessed you in that 24-hour period. One more note. Look at this, and this is, this is heart-wrenching. Look at how harmful our idolatry and our pride can be to others. Look at verse 11. It says, Haman recounted all of these things that he had, and among that list, verse 11, he recounted the number of his sons. So as you're hearing dad put his glory on display, you can imagine sitting in the room as one of the sons and being like, hey, 
I'm one of the things that, that he counts as, as his glory, as his greatness. I'm one of those sons. I feel pretty good about myself. Except for when he continues, how does it make you feel when you hear in verse 12 that Haman says, all of this, including those sons, were nothing to me as long as I see Mordecai not honoring me. Like, are you kidding me? What a hurtful thing to hear a, a, a father say, for a child to hear a dad say. Like, you just told me I was part of the greatness that, that you want to be known for and the legacy that you're... Now I'm worth nothing to you because one dude doesn't want to honor you? And don't kid yourself, right? Like, don't, like, don't hear that in Hammond and think, whew, I'm so glad that's not me. Don't kid yourself, right? Like, our sins, our idolatry, our pride, whatever it is, it has the same impact on our wife, our kids, our, your husband, this church family, right? Like... You may not have slipped the tongue and, and said this in front of them like he did, but your pride, the sin in your heart, does the same thing to the people around you. Our idolatry blinds us to the point that we hurt people and we don't even realize it, or worse, we don't care. Number three, we got to move. Third way, if you want to be sure that you're following Satan's plan, keep company with people that lead you to sin and not sanctification. Let's continue reading. It says, Then his wife Zeresh and all of his friends said to him, Let a gallows 50 cubits high be made, and in the morning tell the king to have Mordecai hanged on it, and then go joyfully with the king to the feast. This idea pleased Haman, and he had the gallows made. Instead of uh, urging Haman to kill the sin in his heart, they encouraged him to kill the man at the city gate, right? Like they contributed to his sin instead of confronting him about it. We do not need, nor is it loving, to be that kind of a friend. Ephesians 4.15 calls us to speak truthfully with one another. With love, we speak the truth to one another. And so, do you, real practical here, do you have people in your life that you've given open invitations to call you out for your sin? Like, I have several close friends that I've said those exact words, like, brother, if you see sin in my heart, I'm giving you, at any time, open permission to call me out on it. And I, it's not lip service, I, like, I really want you to do that. Paul Tripp says, my self-perception, my self-awareness is as accurate as a carnival mirror. You ever been to a carnival and seen the little mirror that makes you look all skewed and, and disfigured? So he says, my, my self-perception is. Like that's, if, I, if I'm left to my own self, that's what I'll see. He continues by saying that we need to hold the word of God up in front of each other so that we can see ourselves in light of it. And that's what we need brothers and sisters in Christ for. That's what you need the church for so that someone can hold the word of God up to you and say, this is what I'm seeing in light of the scriptures, brother. C.J. Mahaney says, without others' help, to see myself clearly, I will listen to my own arguments, I'll believe my own lies, and I'll buy into my own delusions. That's right, and that's true of all of us. We're all tempted to that. So, see the contrast here. Far different from Esther's plan, that's derived and discerned through prayer, Haman's plan was devised by people in a moment of fury. Their plan benefited one person, Haman. He was killing someone so that his ego would no longer be bruised, right? (laughs) The absurdity of that. Someone needed to tell this dude to get over himself. But no one did. Number four, you want to live out Satan's plan in your life? Devalue others and be done with anyone that gets in your way. I think it'd be difficult for us to find anyone devaluing human life more than this guy, Haman. Like, atrocious. Just go out, kill Mordecai, and enjoy your dinner. Right? Like, if he's such a stumbling block for your party with the king and queen, just go kill him. Have him killed. Then you can enjoy your party. Do you hear that? How sickening that is? Haman's happiness worth more than Mordecai's life? Really? And there's so much application here that we don't have time for. I think most obvious is this, that as Christians, 
We must be a people that value all human life, that from the womb to the tomb, from, from conception to final natural death, we're for the sanctity of human life. Now, I know I'm probably preaching to the choir here with that, so let me go a, a step deeper, another layer here. We may not literally want to kill anyone, but I've heard countless Christians say, I'm done with him. I'm done with her. Like, really? Like, like they, they disagree with you, so you're, you're done with them? Like, you're not, you're not hopefully, going to kill them, but you're just going to eliminate anyone standing in your way that, that, that disagrees with you? A brother and sister in Christ that they share a different opinion, so you're just, you're just going to be done with them? You're going to eliminate them from your life? Surely we would not be those kind of folks. And here's the thing. Killing Mordecai doesn't solve Haman's problem, right? Like, what if someone else comes along and they don't want to honor Haman? He's going to go kill them too? And then someone else, you want to kill them? And bodies are stacking up everywhere. And I feel like spiritually, that's so often us, right? Like, someone disagrees, I'm done with them. I mean, I tell them that. I mean, I tell anyone else that, but I ain't going to go out of my way to talk to them. I'm not going to show them brotherly love and affection. I'm done with them. I'm going to eliminate them from my life. May we never, may we never. It'll do exactly so. Spoiler alert here. <laughs> the gallows that they're encouraging him to build, you'll see in coming weeks, he's actually building to hang himself, right? Like he's going to, to die by the gallows that he has built for Mordecai. His own uh, foolishness here and the, the, the devaluing of Mordecai is going to mean his own doom. And the same thing is true for us. If that's you, if you're just so quick to be done with people, as the bodies, figuratively speaking, stack up around you, you're just going to find yourself alone and broken and disconnected from the people of God and from anyone. That's a, that's a sad and desperate place to be. So ask yourself, do I really value others, especially those that disagree with me, those that would push back or give it a different opinion, or do I have a tendency just to write people off rather than exercise God-given patience, right? It's a, it's a fruit, right? Part of the fruit of the Spirit that we're given is patience. So as we wrap up here, we're sort of left with a major cliffhanger, right? Like whose plan is going to be enacted first? That's where the text ends for us today in, in chapter 5. So is Hannon's plan with, with Mordecai dying going to be the first thing that comes about? Or is Esther's plan where the Jews are spared? Which plan is going to happen? We're supposed to feel that tension as we end verse 5. Let me resolve one tension for you, though, this morning as we wrap up. I want this to be where our hearts land. The gospel settles any need we feel for true significance, Right? Like you think about following plans and whether you're following the plan of the Lord or, or Satan's, there's a desire in us for significance. It's, it's built in there. We would, not that we would maybe want to be on a pedestal because some people hate the spotlight, but we want to feel loved and appreciated and needed. And the gospel that Jesus died in our place offers us forgiveness by his death on the cross. That reality is heavy enough to obliterate any idol that you feel your heart longing for. Like today, it can free you of those things, of those desires, those tensions that you feel in your heart. And so as you, as you seek to follow the Lord, understand that following his plan and not Satan's plan is going to be a work that the Holy Spirit does in you. I'm not giving you some, here, do this, do this, do this, do this, and it'll happen. I'm giving, hopefully, from the Scripture some things that by the work of the Holy Spirit, you'll see, man, that's true of my life. That's not true of my life. That's true. Of my... And the Holy Spirit will cultivate the sort of obedience in you such that you'll be following the plan of God. Why? Because the gospel's made that possible. Because Christ dying on the cross for you has made that possible, that by faith and repentance you can come to him and be born again and find forgiveness and rest and peace and hope in Christ. That's the answer you've been looking for, right? So like if you're in the fellowship hall or if you're out on the front lawn or if you're in your car this morning or if you're watching from your couch, 
this morning, there's an invitation. Like, we're not going to have an invitation where you walk the aisle, but the invitation is open, regardless of whether there's a public response time. The invitation is this, repent and believe. Call upon the name of God. Call upon the name of Christ that, that by his death on the cross, you can have forgiveness and find this sort of peace here. Find that your idols can be crushed here. And tell somebody about it. Somebody you came with today, somebody that you know is a believer, call them up, text them, say, hey, we got to talk. Something happened in my heart today. I've just got to share with you. That's the invitation. Confess with your mouth that, that you believe that his death on the cross was in your place, that the king died for you. That invitation is always open. Come to this king. Let me pray for us. And we have a couple announcements, and then we'll be dismissed. Father, we thank you for your word today. That in, in the word, it's often called a sword, and the word cuts, and it divides, and it hurts sometimes. But God, it's good, and it's good for us, and it's good for your glory. And so, God, I pray over every person under the sound of my voice in whatever medium they're listening today, that, God, you would help us to hold this word, these scriptures up before us and, and gaze into them as a mirror and ask just, God, for transformation that you can only bring. That, God, you would help us to see ourselves in light of your perfect son who died on, on the cross for us. And God, help us to be quick to repent. God, if there's one person here or out there that's never been born again, that's never trusted you, never repented of their sins and followed Christ in faith, God, I pray that today would be the day of salvation, that today their destination, their future would be eternally changed and different because they yielded their lives to you today. So God, would you use your word and all of these means and, and, and ways of, of communicating to bring about salvation for the glory of King Jesus, to bring about sanctification in the lives of your people for the glory of King Jesus. Help us to be destroying idols by the power of your spirit. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.